Well, it feels good to say this. Hello, I'm Gary Burgess and welcome to a second series of The Emmy Show, supported by the Emmy Association. If you're one of the 15,000 or so who listened to the first series, thank you. And if you've just joined us, I hope you'll get a chance to listen back to those previous episodes. This series is going to focus on experts. That's those working to research Emmy and those working to raise awareness and understanding of it in the medical and wider worlds. We start this series at an exciting time. Just last week, the MP Carol Monaghan led a debate about Emmy in the House of Commons. We spoke to her in the last series about her commitment to shifting political thinking around this illness, and she's certainly proving true to her word. I, for one, am so grateful for her efforts, like so many other people I know are as well. Let's start this series, though, with a look at where things are at the start of 2019. The one man who seems to have the best overview is Dr. Charles Shepherd. He's the medical advisor to the Emmy Association, and he's plugged into so much of what's happening right now, including the ongoing review of the official NICE guidelines about the way patients with ME should be treated. I think you are the only person I'll be able to say this to this second series, but welcome back to the ME show. How are you? Uh, fine. Thanks very much, Gary. Um, we've, we've clearly got a pretty busy, hectic and eventual year ahead, I think. So I suppose this is a good opportunity to just take stock of what's happening at the moment in relation to some of these key things that are going on. Absolutely. And indeed, on the very day we are recording this podcast, some news has just come through uh, about the MP Carol Monaghan, who I interviewed for the last series, that uh, she secured something significant in Parliament. Do you want to just tell us what that is, Charles? Yes, um, Carol was able to announce this morning that she has now secured via her discussions with the House of Commons Business Committee a full-scale House of Commons debate on ME. But uh, I think the key points about this is, is Carol's had two um, Westminster debates now. They've been what are called Westminster Hall debates. They've been very well attended, but they haven't actually been in the chamber of the House of Commons. So this ups the status um, considerably. Um, and what she's going to be covering in this debate. Um, so the, the debate will be covering NICE, the NICE guidelines, the need for more biomedical research, um, and some of the aspects of medical education that we're dealing with um, at the moment. I think what's significant to me, and I'm very much a bystander watching on pretty much in awe in all that's being achieved, is when, when she spoke to me last year, she said her plan was really slowly, slowly catchy monkey. And, and this is it. Every step seems to be getting bigger and bigger we we might be quite a few more debates away from a massive breakthrough of any kind but the point is she's bringing people with her on a journey yes and uh, it, 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 what is so encouraging from the disappointment you know we're going back probably about two years now of the all-party parliamentary group on me uh, you know ceasing to exist because there wasn't enough support from an all-party group of mps to keep it going and, and fill all the roles um that, that carol has come along in the commons and you know rather like margaret marr in the house of lords is is, is a shining light <laughs> that, that that is is attracting people from all parties um, with an interest in this to get involved. And so we, we're, we're creating this real parliamentary pre presence in the House of Commons again. 
And it strikes me this is also off the back of three, six, nine, maybe 12 months of a, a, a decent steady flow of, of media coverage of one kind or another. I know some people have taken exception to some of the coverage and, and some of the perceived accuracy or otherwise, but, but actually getting it and keeping it on the radar matters. Yes, and I, I, I fully take the point, uh, and this is, I think, and it's probably always going to be the case, or certainly going to be the case for the, for the foreseeable future, given what's happened in the past, and, and, and the fact that this, this is a subject which many journalists find difficult to deal with, and, and, and some of the, even the top health journalists shy away from dealing with, um, is that we are making progress with the media, and there have been some bad stories, but at the same point, we obviously get all the media um, stuff that's coming in. John Siddle, our, our press and PR person, um, has got some very good stories into the media this year. We've had the BBC documentary yeah. um, that went out. So by and large, the media coverage, I, I, th- I think, has improved considerably. Yeah, that, that's that's certainly my perception. And, and at an important time, as you, you mentioned earlier in this conversation, as this review of, of the NICE guidelines, just, just explain to people who don't quite understand the significance of this, A, what NICE guidelines are and why a review is needed. Right. Well, as, as many people are probably aware, we, we have what's called a NICE guideline on MECFS. This was actually produced quite a long time ago. It's produced and published back in 2007. And ever since then, there have been widespread complaints from the patient community that this is not fit for purpose. And, and we, we have taken that position as well, largely because it's it's a guideline and it is a guideline. It's not, not sort of instructions to doctors, although <laughs> I know many of my medical colleagues do regard these recommendations as almost instructions as to what they should and shouldn't do with patients. But it is supposed to be guidance. Doctors are supposed to be able to to use their clinical judgment. But the main problem with the NICE guideline is the fact that it, it, it is perceived as taking the, the, the what you call the biopsychosocial model of this illness, inferring that there's no real disease process going on, and that therefore the main route to treatment should be the use of cognitive behavior therapy based on the idea that the patients have, have got abnormal illness beliefs and behaviors and this can change these behaviors, and the use of graded exercise therapy, which is based on the view that there's no real disease process going on in the muscle um, or the brain causing um, the the, the really debilitating fatigue, exercise-induced activity-induced fatigue that occurs in this illness, and that basically the problem is one of of inactivity and deconditioning. So by just progressively increasing the amount of activity that you do, which is the the whole backbone to to graded exercise, um, that people will get better. And we have not only pointed out that as far as CBT is concerned, for most people, this is an ineffective form of treatment. It's also a costly form of treatment. But the the, the really worrying thing is that over 50% consistently in a a whole range of charity-based surveys that have been done, including our our major report back in 2004, have shown that the majority of people find that graded exercise condition, uh, graded, graded exercise therapy makes their condition worse. And if in some cases, it can produce really a significant relapse. So there's been this tremendous pressure on NICE to review their guideline or produce a NICE guideline. NICE have resisted up to now. The MEA produced this petition. We got 15,000 signatures two years ago now um, saying to NICE, 
you know, we want a new guideline. People uh, 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 just kind of, this guideline is not acceptable. Nice resisted uh, the pressure to start with, but I think it was the petition and the parliamentary pressure um, that really changed the mind at Nice. So Nice have agreed to produce a new guideline on MECFS. It's not an updated guideline. It's a totally new, starting from fresh guideline. And the trouble with NICE is that they move very, very slowly. And this is a three-year process. So that having having announced that this new guideline was going to be prepared, we spent all of last year dealing with all the sort of background stuff of producing scoping documents, consulting with people as to what they wanted to see in it, who they didn't what, what they didn't want to see in it, and then appointing a committee, and that's taken several months to do. But we are now in a position where the, the real work on this guideline is about to kick off. The first meetings of the committee will start to take place in February and March. Uh, a number of well-known names um, from the ME um, doctor community are involved in this. My, myself, um, Dr. William Weir, and Dr. Lewis Knackle from the ME Biobank. And these meetings will be starting off and looking at the evidence um, in relation to both diagnosis and treatment of ME. We, we've got to realise that the NICE guideline is not about research into this illness and causation. It's primarily about how we diagnose and manage it or how doctors do so. So that, that's kicking off. But uh, one very important part of this um, process and this process of, of gathering patient evidence um, is that we have been asked as a group of charities, that's the Forward ME group of charities chaired by the Countess of Ma, to produce a new survey, new patient evidence survey on if there are any benefits and certainly harms relating to the use of CBT and graded exercise. So we have launched that survey. It's available on all the charity websites for the whole period of January. Um, the results will then be analysed and a report will be produced by an independent academic research group that we've commissioned to do this at the University of Oxford, that's Oxford Brooks University, and then a report on these um, findings from the survey will go to NICE um, on March the 1st. So we've, we've had a really fantastic response to this survey so far. Within three days of it being launched, we had over a 1,000 people respond, and that, that's absolutely tremendous. Um, I'm not sure when this podcast is going out, um, but if it's going out before January 31st and you haven't yet signed or, or looked at the survey or taken part in the survey, then, then please go and do so. You said a little earlier in your answer that NICE are looking at this one from scratch. So this isn't about tinkering with existing guidelines. This is writing new guidelines. Uh, are you confident that the blank sheet of paper they're starting with will not start with any premise or assumption that this is a psychological illness? I, it's difficult to give guarantees on what NICE is going to do or say. But um, I, I feel very confident, having had a, a number of conversations and met both the chair, Dr. Peter Barry, and the vice chair, Baroness Finlay, um, who's a member of the House of Lords, um, that they have fully grasped the concerns of the patient community about what is in the current NICE guideline. Um, I think they are very well aware that this is not a psychosocial illness. And I am reasonably confident that we are going to see at the end of this a nice guideline which is going to be much better than what we have at present. 
And will this guideline, and I may be asking things to which answers don't exist at this stage, will this guideline be very clear about any not being lowercase chronic fatigue as a general set of symptoms, that it is something distinct? I Again, I think the NICE Guideline Committee have grasped the, the concerns here again that this is not just chronic fatigue. Well, it is not chronic fatigue in any case. Yes. Uh, that there is a, a, a very important distinction that, that, that exists in clinical practice, and I think this, this has to be made clear, and I think, again, the NICE Guideline Committee have grasped the defects in the current um, guideline in, in the way that NICE currently recommends that this is the basis for, for the diagnosis of this illness and that it has to be separated from people who just have chronic fatigue for all kinds of reasons. This is a very distinct um, neuroimmune syn- syn- syndrome that often follows a viral infection with very specific defining symptoms of which probably the most important are obviously the activity-induced um, muscle fatigue and the post-exertional malaise, which are things which are almost unique um, to this condition. Absolutely. Um, what month or year or decade do I go and Google nice <laughs> guidelines for ME uh, and find a set of guidelines that I will believe are satisfactory and accurate? In other words, how far away is all this? Well, at the moment, I mean, the, these guidelines, as I said earlier, normally take about three years to produce, and we're, we're into year two of this, this guideline at the moment. Um, it is a slow process, but I think we're, we're fairly up to date on where things should be at the moment. So the uh, proposal from NICE that this guideline should be published in October 2020, I think, still holds true. So at the moment, I think we are looking at October 2020 for publication. Which actually, when it was first announced, felt like an age away. If, if we all now squint a little bit and, and just say it very quickly, we can say it's, it's due out next year. Uh, I, yeah, I, 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 I think at the moment that looks fairly likely. Okay. Okay. I'm I'm trying to remain positive because I think that is important. It's certainly important for my own well-being, I believe. Um, uh, Last time we spoke, one one very important thing, uh, just uh, before we move on to the next thing uh, about the nice guideline. uh, Of course, there there is this tremendous concern that uh, until we get the new guideline, we are stuck with the old guideline and this recommendation that everyone with mild or moderate. ME should go off and have a course of CBT and or graded exercise. And we have tried to get this removed from the guideline or nice to issue some sort of health warning about these treatments um, without any success um, so far to date. And also Carol and the parliamentarians have have been trying hard um, to persuade NICE to do something on this as well. And again, this patient evidence survey that um, is in progress at the moment as we speak um, may be an important additional bit of evidence that NICE will look at in relation to whether they might be willing to put some sort of health warning on the current NICE guideline. So that is still possible in the meantime? It's not one uh, than the other? Uh, I wouldn't say it was likely, but it is, I think, still possible that we may get some movement there, yeah. 
Okay, we spoke an awful lot in, in the last series when we, we had our conversation about the, the range of research and efforts that are ongoing right now to understand ME. Um, I, yeah, I hear talk of the biobank and, and other bits of research. I, I still find it all very confusing to follow. Uh, where, are, where are we at right now? What's the most significant stuff? What's the, the most uh, hopeful stuff? Uh, what's the most unusual stuff? What's the stuff we should be looking at? Well, again, I, I think the, the outlook here, again, is, is, is looking pretty encouraging. Um, I was at a meeting of the CFSME Research Collaborative um, yesterday when we were discussing various aspects of research that's going on at the moment and uh, hopefully may well be going on. And in particular, we were looking, we set up some working groups within the um, CMRC to look at some of these new areas of research that we're moving into, not only with this disease, but other diseases, where we're making use of what we call these new technologies for getting information um, that wasn't previously available to us in any way whatsoever. So this involves these new sort of techniques, they're called, uh, one, one branch of them is called omics, and these involve what we call genomics, which is looking uh, at the genetics of a condition and getting clues about causation uh, of a condition and genetic susceptibility to a condition. And we think certainly that from, from this increased incidence of ME-CFS in, in some families, that there's a genetic component to this disease. So I think it's important that we start to, to look at the genomics um, of this of this illness. We're also looking at what we call met metabolomics and proteomics. We're, we're funding at the MEA, um, Dr. Carl Morton at Oxford um, and his team there um, to follow on from the American studies which have found abnormalities in relation to metabolomics. Metabolomics are, are looking for what we call uh, metabolites, chemical um, clues that are left behind in the blood after chemical reactions have taken place in cells and tissues. And proteomics are looking for proteins that are left behind in the blood after these sort of reactions. So we, we can get some very important chemical clues as to where, how things may be going on in tissues, in the muscle, for example, in relation to how the muscle is producing energy. So these are uh, exciting new things which are, are starting to produce information. They may help us from the point of view of diagnostic biomarkers. We, we, we need a diagnostic blood test for this disease, obviously. Um, they're giving us clues towards causation. And of course, uh, that leads on to, to clues as far as treatments that we may be, may be able to use. And in recent, just, I mean, just in recent weeks, you've only got to go and look at the MEA website and the news carousel and the, the excellent um, research summaries that Charlotte Stevens does for the MEA now on, on the more complicated uh, research papers. Uh, I mean, just to pick up on three papers that I, I've written down quickly this morning that, that we've put up, um, there's the new paper from Ron Davis's group um, in uh, America looking at uh, a, a rather new abnormality, which is a deformity in red um, blood cell shape. Um, very interesting abnormality, small study, needs replicating, um, needs to be done by other independent research groups before we can draw any firm conclusions. But an interesting study. Um, the study, uh, again reported last week, I think it was, from um, Younger's group in America on neuroimaging. That's use of brain scans uh, to look at what we call neuroinflammation. That's low-level inflammation within the central nervous system. And also the UK research that 
came out a few weeks ago from the group at King's College Hospital in London. I mean, they looked at what happened to people with hepatitis C who were treated with um, a substance called interferon alpha. And although this was not a study in patients with ME-CFS, these people who have hepatitis C and they're given this immune system chemical called interferon alpha then go on and develop a, a profound fatigue often and many symptoms which are very similar to an ME-CFS-like illness. And what's interesting in that case is that there are some people who are given the interferon alpha who continue to have their fatigue and their ME-CFS-like symptoms long after the interferon has been removed. So it suggests that there's some sort of subgroup, possibly again, go back to a genetic susceptibility here, um, who are reacting in an abnormal way to an immune system stimulant. It could be a virus, it could be this uh, interferon alpha, and then going on to produce these immune system chemicals on an ongoing basis that produce these ME-CFS-like symptoms. And that links in with other research which has been published over the past few years, which again links in with a, a, a rather unusual immune system disturbance involving these immune system chemicals, these cytokines that produce flu-like feelings when anyone's got a dose of flu. So, you know, there's an awful lot going on. Um, it's not always easy putting it all together and, and fitting it all together as, as to how one component fits in with, with another component. But as I've tried to illustrate, there are reasons how um, some of these abnormalities do link together. Um, and then the important thing from the patient point of view, of course, is how does this then translate into either developing a biomarker, a diagnostic test, or giving us clues as to as, as, as to how we can um, you know use various drug therapies that can uh, deal with these sort of abnormalities and produce some sort of effective treatment for this disease. And 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 who is it that I think I might have asked you this last time? Who is it that is either pulling all of this disparate research together, or is overlaying all this existing research, almost like a Venn diagram, to go? Oh my word! The common ground is this we've cracked it is someone doing that um i, I think you've raised a very good point there we we, <laughs> we 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 need a czar don't we who yeah can, can sort of sit there and pull all this stuff together as opposed to us sitting here and you know writing the purple book and charlotte doing her research summaries and trying to pull it together i've just had um, this feeling all along charles that out there already exists the answer. I don't know why I've got this feeling. I can't back it up. But I, there's just so much going on that you just think... Yeah, it, would be, it would be nice to have someone in, you know, almost in a sort of prime ministerial position um, in, in total control. Uh, not total control, but sitting out there um, assessing and taking note of everything that's going on and trying to put it together. That would be, that would be good. But what, what we do have is this emergence of... Um, what we might describe as, uh, as centres of excellence starting to emerge here within the UK, where there are multidisciplinary teams, in other words, different people within different ologies and, and uh, scientific um, disciplines who are working together on all these different aspects and doing research which coordinates them all. Um, 
and you know we're working together we've got at oxford we've got people involved in metabolomics we've got professor helen dawes who's, who's involved in exercise physiology up at oxford brooks dr carl morton um involved in um, mitochondrial disease that's the the um, organelles within muscle that produce energy within the body so we've got a center of excellence there starting to emerge in oxford they are working very closely with the people um professor julia newton's group which is very multidisciplinary um up in newcastle um and they're also working with our which is again starting to emerge as a center of excellence at university college london um with the biobank and professor joe cambridge at um, UCL, who is doing this um, further work on immune system dysfunction and energy metabolism and how the, the two things there may be linked together using samples from the biobank. So th there is quite a lot of um, interdisciplinary work going on and people talking to other each other within different disciplines. And also, uh, certainly here with the biobank, we're, we're now getting applications from um, researchers outside the UK for the use of our biobank samples. In fact, I haven't got a percentage here, but I think probably around about a third of um, current applications that we're, we're dealing with are from researchers outside the UK or dealing with or supplying samples too. Um, we've got Professor Eliza Alter in Spain. We've got um, someone in Israel. Uh, we have someone in Austria. We have a research group in America uh, applying for samples, one in South America as well. So, uh, you know, we, we, most people in this, in this sort of fairly narrow area of MECFS research, whatever discipline they're in, um, are aware of each other and to some extent are talking to each other. But, you know, we, we could do with more of it. Uh, but but I do also notice in recent months that there have been a number of events and, and as you say, people are getting together and, and raising, well, sharing expertise for one, but also raising awareness among different areas of, of, of the medical sphere. Yes, yes. And, and I mean, another way, obviously, in which people do this is through international conferences. We, we've got a... a, a, a big uh, conference coming up in Australia. I know I got some of the details through from that um, today, which uh, I think it's called Emerge in Australia, organising in March. Um, Lewis Knackle from the Barbank um, will be going down as a, uh, a key speaker at that conference. Um, there is a big um, NIH, National Institutes of Health, uh, research conference in the United States taking place in April. I was up at the Medical Research Council yesterday and they had been invited to um, go along to that um, meeting. Um, unfortunately, we don't. Uh, the the, the, the uh, CMRC Research Collaborative, uh, for reasons which I won't go into here, um, we, we've decided not to have our annual conference in September for logistical reasons this year, and that will be in March um, 2020. So th there are these international conferences taking place at a fairly regular um, basis where everyone, I think, you know, most people who playing any sort of important role are getting together and talking to each other about the research that's taking place. Uh, where or who in your mind are the world leaders right now when it comes to trying to crack the riddle that is ME? <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Name names. That's, that's, a, 
That's a difficult one. I mean, I, I, I think there are some very key, let's put it this way, here in the UK, we've got some very key figures. I, I would just list off the top of my head, Professor Julian Newton up in Newcastle, Carl Moulton in Oxford, um, Lewis Knackle and our biobank team um, at the London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine, um, all, all involved in different areas of, of medicine. Um, I, I mean, I think as far as muscle research, mitochondrial research, um, the UK is, is leading the field here, uh, and we have done for, for many years. Um, as far as biobanking is concerned, our, our biobank has a, 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 you know, I think we are the world, well, we are the world leader there. We have a, a very high international reputation now for the samples we're supplying. So um, I, I think we can feel pretty proud of, of you know, the highlighted people here in the UK. Um, of course, across the pond in America, um, we've got Professor uh, Jose Montoya at, at Stanford doing very important work uh, in a number of areas, certainly with, with, with his team. Uh, Ron Davis is part of that team as well. Um, so, yeah, we, you know, we've got a, a handful of very high-profile high people. Where does the money come from to pay for all of this? Because this, this stuff isn't cheap, is it? This research is, is not is not cheap. Um, to carry out just a, a fairly straightforward one-year research study now might well cost you £50,000. So a lot of research is, is either outside the, the, the ability of the charity sector to do or we can only help with pilot studies, small, start, small studies, getting things going or co-funding studies. And so we really do need the assistance of the big government funding agencies like the Medical Research Council, NIHR, and also uh, things like the Wellcome Trust to get involved with this. Now, as people are very well aware, and a report came out, actually was done by the CMRC on research funding, there is a terrible disparity in relation to MECFS and other chronic neurological diseases in terms of, of government funding. You compare it to multiple sclerosis where, uh, you know, we have probably 250,000 people, there are 100,000, around about 100,000 people with multiple sclerosis, and yet multiple sclerosis gets 20 times the research funding of, of ME. And why is so, that? Well, it's, it's, it's historical, it's, it's, there are a number of reasons. Um, certainly in, in the past, the research funding bodies, the official research funding bodies, have not been interested, quite frankly, in getting involved in this subject. And then we went through the very painful process following the Chief Medical Officer's report back in 2002 when the Medical Research Council was asked to produce a report on uh, their role in research funding for this illness and it was very clear that they just wanted to take a, a, a biopsychosocial uh, route to research. So that, is, that has been their remit until recently, until they the expert group reported some years ago. But things, um, I, was there, I, was, I was up at the MRC yesterday and meet, meeting with the people at the MRC who are responsible for, for MECFS funding. And there is a real realisation up there, um, also with the new chief um, executive there, Fiona Watt, that this is a condition that deserves serious funding. It is a serious medical condition it is not a psychosocial illness um, and that bodies like the mrc and nihr national institute of health research uh, it, it really is time that they they made a serious contribution to the funding of this illness but again i, I think the message is getting through 
um, there. And I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we will see some, some, some movement there as well. Good, good. Uh, I, I want to go, I mean, this is almost the start of the food chain. I want to go to the, the end of the food chain, which is the, the person living with ME or, or in some cases existing rather than living with ME. When might that person experience something better? When will something tangible happen, do you think? Yeah, uh, I, 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 again, I don't want to give any guarantees and I don't want to give any false hopes. And I, you know, from past experience, I, I think yeah, I, 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 I felt very uncomfortable when some of my colleagues have, have almost promised new treatments coming around the corner um, on the basis of new research findings. And I, 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 I honestly can't make those sort of promises. Um, what I can say is that, that as we are getting these important clues about illness causation, um, we are starting to look at certain drug treatments, some of which are there already for other diseases, um, some of which may be drugs which might be rather more unique to METFS. But we have got, certainly got some clues about the different types of treatments which could be of help, I think, to subgroups of people with this illness, not right across the board. And I... I would like, really would like to see some more clinical trials taking place of drug treatments that could be of help in this illness. To go back to what we were saying just, uh, you know, only a few minutes ago about the cost of clinical trials, the problem here is that for a research funding charity like the MEA to go and set up a clinical trial, but we wouldn't actually set it up, but we would fund it, um, in, 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 in view of the cost of doing this, it, it's probably something that's outside our remit. So what we have to find is clinicians um, in hospital-based settings where clinical trials can be carried out, Not this can't be done in all hospitals, um, who are keen and interested and knowledgeable about this illness, who want to pursue clinical trials, and then let's see them putting in applications to the research funding bodies to see if we can get some clinical trials going. So I, I, I'm reasonably optimistic that, you know, over the period of the next five years, that, that we are going to be looking at some potential treatments aimed at the underlying disease process as opposed to just looking at treatments which help to control symptoms like pain and sleep disturbance. I think I'd rather have the, the realistic answer than the over, overly optimistic answer. So I, I, I do appreciate what you've just said. Uh, I'm aware we've been chatting for over half an hour now, Charles. Are, are there any other particular issues you, you think we should be getting said at this point? Um, I think the, the one other thing that I'd just like to mention is the various initiatives that are taking place in relation to medical education. And by that, I mean educating doctors about this disease. And th there are, again, on this front, some, some encouraging developments here. If we start right at the bottom with medical students, um, many people listening to this will be aware of my colleague, Dr. Nina Muirhead, who's um, actually a surgeon but has personal experience of this disease and has been working so hard to try and improve the situation at a medical school level with this disease. She has an academic role at Cardiff University and uh, some of the stuff that, that Nina is doing, we're, we're working in with her on this. Um, we, we've got, a, a, or Nina has got a, a questionnaire going out to all medical schools at the moment, um, asking them what they do in the way of education on MECFS with her own medical school at Cardiff. They're producing an e-learning module on this illness. Students are being encouraged to take on MECFS projects. And one student, in actual fact, 
has, with Nina's help, um, devised the MEA website questionnaire for January, um, which is on GP. What what people think GPs need to know about um, MECFS. Um, as, as, again, as people probably know, we did a workshop on MECFS diagnosis and management at the Royal College of General Practitioners annual conference in October last year that we had an excellent attendance. We couldn't get any more people in the room. 250 GPs turned up to a workshop that I did with uh, Dr. Gregor Purdy and Nigel Spate. And that's been followed on by quite a number of of, um, queries from both individual GPs, GPs wanting talks um, and things like that. We're also due to meet the Medical Schools Council to take this Uh, med school education further so there's quite a lot going on with medical education and i would just flag up to to finish on that point um the fact that we have the mea purple booklet this this 145 page odd um guideline fully up to date fully referenced summary of all the key research findings how to make a diagnosis tests management everything else and we've still got money in the educational budget at the MEA to send out free copies to any health professional who'd like a copy of this booklet. Thank you for your time today, Dr. Charles Shepherd. It is always a joy. I think we need to make it a rule that you appear at least once a series. And, and I know on behalf of an awful lot of people, uh, we're very grateful for your continued work and advocacy. Thank you very much for well, your time. Gary, I, before you go, I mean, can, can I just reciprocate that? Because I kind of just say thank you for doing these podcasts because uh, I was a bit sceptical about whether this was going to be a success. But we know from the number of people who are listening to these podcasts and the reaction to um, the, the, the people that you interviewed last year on the podcast, that it's, it's had a fantastic response. So um, thanks for doing this and, uh, and, and keep on doing it. Dr. Charles Shepard there, and you'll find the links to many of the things we've spoken about in the show notes that accompany this podcast. If you're listening in iTunes, please rate and review the show there as it helps boost our visibility when other people are searching for the Emmy show. And wherever and however you found us, until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>